Our uh, first uh, sermon reading today comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 19. Or rather, verse 18. Uh, then the spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers. For your God helps you. Then David received them and made them officers of his troops. Our next passage is from Second Chronicles 15. This is uh, verses 1 through 8. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces, nations were crushed by nations, and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in the front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. Our next reading is from chapter 20. This is verses 14 through 19. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, a Levite, the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said to them, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow we go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight them in battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And this uh, final passage is from chapter 24, and this is verses 20 through 22. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says the Lord, why do you break the commandments of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him. And by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Then Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Uh, so today um, I am concluding our series on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And no doubt there is uh, more work to be done in this fascinating area. Um, however, one of my aims for this series is to try and help all of you, all of us, see how we might fit in to the empowering work of the Spirit. 
in order to be a fully functioning church, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that uh, we all need to be a part. He uses this uh, great analogy of the different body parts working together. And uh, based on this vision, and as a result, I've tried to give everyone a vision of the Holy Spirit that goes beyond the typical ideas we think of as spiritual. Uh, Because what I've learned is I've studied and worked through these passages of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit is far bigger uh, than the few small areas we have relegated it to. Uh, The scripture, uh, I hope that we've seen, uh, has given us a much broader vision so that we look at different strengths, different talents, uh, not typically associated with the Holy Spirit. Like we've talked about administration, we've talked about art, we've talked about leadership. And what I want to do in this concluding sermon is to try to include everyone else who may not feel like they fit into these previous categories. Uh, So this sermon is uh, simply for what we might call just the average believer, the, the dedicated believer simply trying to work out their faith in their world. So it's actually fitting that we conclude our series of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament with Chronicles, because here's a fun fact about Chronicles. It's the last book in the ordering of the Hebrew Bible. So if you were to go to a synagogue uh, yesterday uh, and you were to pick up uh, their, uh, one, of, one of their Bibles, uh, you would flip to the end and Chronicles would actually be at the end. Now, this isn't just a, a mere piece of Bible trivia because it is important to, to, to know about this fact, to understand the function of Chronicles uh, in the Bible, as well as the point that I want to make today. So, Here's the weird thing about Chronicles, okay? So you've, you, you know, you will be forgiven if you have never heard a sermon from Chronicles or heard, uh, it, you know, it, know anything about it, okay? Uh, but if you've ever been one of these people that said, okay, I'm going to read straight through the Bible, all right? And let's say you're one of those people and you manage to make it through Leviticus and Numbers, okay? You, you power through there. Eventually, you get to First and Second Kings, and it's kind of cool. There's all kinds of neat little stories in there. And then in the ordering of our Bible, you start reading Chronicles. And you get to this, like, seven chapters of genealogies, and they're super boring, but you manage to power through that. And you're like, finally, I'm getting to a, a story, you know, something more relatable. And what happens? You start reading, and you're like, I just read this. This was King's. I mean, it's super weird. Uh, why is that? Why do we have a book that basically just repeats the contents of another book? It's a, it's a good question. Well, it turns out that there is a method to this madness. So the history of Israel was super important to these people, okay? Like this was their identity. And uh, what it turns out is that after, the, after kings, uh, there were some major events. There were two major events that occurred, okay? So kings is about one thing, and uh, then these two events occurred. So one is that the uh, northern kingdom of Israel is, uh, falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then even more so, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to the Babylonians in 587 BC. Now, after these two tragedies, the question becomes, how were the Israelites to think of their history, which is their identity? How were they to think of their history, their identity? How were they to think of their future and their relationship with God and all these promises that God had been making throughout uh, the scriptures? 
now that their nation had been completely destroyed. Uh, the question was, what did their story now mean? So enter the book of Chronicles, which is a fresh retelling of Israel's history as an attempt to find a basis for the restoration and rebuilding of Israel after their return from exile in Babylon. So what Chronicles is doing is it's trying to, to forge an approach ahead. It's trying to give a, a new idea about what who Israel was and, and what they would do. Uh, Kings did a great job of explaining the exile is a series of failed leadership, but what Chronicles is actually doing is it's going beyond the failure and answering the question of how should we then live? Uh, you know, just to give you an example to try to help you think through this, uh, one place Chronicles looks to hope for is a restored monarchy, a restored kingship. Therefore, when Chronicles is retelling the story of David, only the positive aspects are included. He, the Chronicles leaves out the negative parts. And this isn't an attempt to deceive or to whitewash David's reign. Uh, the writer of Chronicles knows full well there's this whole book of Kings and Samuel that is, is very detailed about all the things that uh, Israel does wrong or David does wrong. But it's hoping that this future king uh, in the line of David will restore and rebuild Israel. It's building up to that point. So uh, my point without going too far down this road is that the take-home message is that Chronicles is about future hope. And so it makes sense that it comes at the end of the Hebrew Bible, telling us everything that happened, but with an eye toward how the story might move forward. So with that understanding of Chronicles, it makes sense that we can see that the key to understanding it is to look at the places where Chronicles differs for Kings. I give you the one example about David, uh, because these are going to be the places the author is trying to make the case for this future hope. So it turns out that there just happens to be four stories of, of individuals who play no role in the book of Kings, but they are included in Chronicles. And so their inclusion tells us that the author has made a deliberate choice in selecting this material. And the best explanation is that these stories support the overall point Chronicles is trying to make. Otherwise, why introduce the new material? Well, those four stories just happen to be our passages today. Now, the interesting thing for our sermon series is that all four of these stories, and you probably noticed when we were reading them, they all involve the spirit, the spirit coming upon someone or, or clothing someone, I think it's mentioned twice. So what I wanted to do today is look at these stories and see what they are trying to tell us about the future hope of Israel and specifically what they tell us about the work of the spirit. And one thing I think you're going to find is even though we're picking this weirdo uh, set of passages from this weirdo book, that this is going to be like super practical. Uh, that was That's the point here. So uh, these stories are going to get strange. Uh, there's going to need to be some context, but bear with me because the whole point is to be practical here. So the first story is for 1 Chronicles 12. It centers on a man named Amasai. And this story occurs during this time in David's life when he was living in exile and being hunted by King Saul. 
So uh, if you remember the story of David, uh, there, there was uh, Saul, and he was a bad king, and uh, uh, we decided, uh, they, you know, God decided they needed a change, and so the prophet Samuel anoints David uh, to be the future king of Israel. And David was fairly popular because he had defeated that guy Goliath, uh, so you know that story. Now, Saul had actually appointed David commander-in-chief of his army, uh, Saul had given David uh, his daughter in marriage, and David was even friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, and so in a way, at first, the, the two men formed this kind of uneasy alliance, but it eventually broke down when King Saul tried to kill David. And so David flees, and he assembles a band of followers, including this man, Amasai, who leads a legendary group of warriors who uh, are loyal to David called the Thirty. Uh, so this verse shows Amasai pledging his and his followers' loyalty to David. And uh, this pledge was accepted by David, who uh, makes Amasai and these 30 uh, people, the 30 followers, officers in his army. So if we look at the verse, uh, it's just one verse, notice that when the spirit clothes Amasai, the result is, interestingly enough, for uh, 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 the leader of a group of warriors, is poetry. Uh, the poem's short, and you know, at first it kind of seems unremarkable, but it's actually quite savvy if you think about what's going on here. Okay, so Saul's king, he's the king, he's got all the power, he's ruling, and David is a fugitive. Uh, David's claim to the throne, uh, his claim to legitimacy is weak, at least in the eyes of the people. Uh, Saul is firmly in control, and David's on the run. So the only thing going for him at this time is that the prophet Samuel has anointed him king, and that's not really uh, worth that much right now. Yet Amasai praises him as the son of Jesse. Now that's significant because it means uh, that he's not praising him as the son-in-law of Saul, but as a man in his own right. Now, earlier, there was a story about David, which a man named Nabal had refused to give him and his men food, declaring that he owed nothing to someone who was just a son of Jesse. Uh, in other words, not in the royal line. So you can see Amasai is, uh, is not doing that. Amasai is saying, look, uh, you're David, you're the son of Jesse. Some people may not think that that's important, but, but my point here is saying it is. Uh, in addition, Amasai uses a, a word peace. He uses the word peace three times here. Uh, so Amasai, what he's saying is that he doesn't see David's rebellion as a threat, but as a chance for shalom, for peace. Um, so Amasai indicates here that despite David's precarious situation, he is all in with David's story. He's all in with David's story. He's all in with David's claim of kingship. He's in with David's vision of Israel. And it's the clothing of the spirit that leads him to this uh, conviction and expression. Okay? So that's one story. We're going to move on to the second one now. So I'm just going to try to briefly explain each story, and then we're going to see how these tie together at the end. So the second story is, uh, is from 1 Chronicles 15. This is the speech by Azariah, the son of Odad. Now, Azariah is a prophet, and his speech is addressed to King Asa. So King Asa is uh, the king of Judah. He's one of the few good kings, you know, what we call the good kings of Judah. Uh, we know next to nothing about Azariah. This is the only place he's mentioned in the Bible. 
However, we told we are told that the result is uh, the spirit of the God comes upon him and his speech proves effective because it leads King Asa to put away the idols and even repair the altar in the temple. So that's cool. Um, but again, Azariah's speech, you know, we kind of read through this and, and just are like, okay, that sounds like some like really smart, like churchy kind of words and, you know, like the Bible and stuff. Um, but it's actually, once again, just like Amos's uh, speech, this is actually pretty brilliant. Um, in fact, it'd be really interesting if we knew like a good rhetoric professor to like work through these. Uh, that would be really cool. But, you know, um, Ezariah's speech is brilliant because what it does is it actually makes a lot of references to Israel's tradition and what makes Israel unique. Uh, the speech begins with the words, the Lord is with you while you are with him. And um, this phrase is purposely meant to recall uh, the goal of God's relationship with Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's like constantly repeated in the Torah. Okay, so that's like really key. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Uh, there's actually a couple of passages, Deuteronomy 30 and Leviticus 26, which which God promises that we, he will return to his people even if they abandon him, if they will repent. Uh, Azariah looks to the distant past, reminding them that they once did not have the Torah, the priests in the temples, you know, back when they were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord had given him all these things. And he had made them special as God freed them. So Azariah also reminds them of the time of the judges, you know, back before there were kings when there was no peace. And, and of course, you know, kind of what's brilliant here is like he talks about the judges, this time of the judges when like everything was like bad. And, you know, the book of Judges, if you know anything about it, keeps repeating this phrase. Uh, everybody did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. So kind of what he left unsaid is uh, is that that uh, the, the chaos of judges was established, was saw by the establishment of the kingship. And guess who he's speaking to? The king, you know? So what the spirit has led Azariah to do is craft a speech making references to Israel's past. And he's highlighted uh, the, the, the things that make Israel special and showed how it was God who was responsible for making them special. And then he kind of subtly reminds Asa as his, of his responsibilities as king. And the result is, of course, that Asa tears down the idols and restores proper worship in Judah. Okay, the second story. So let's go to the third story now. This is from chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles. And this story involves the prophet Jehaziel, who is addressing a, a, another king, King Jehoshaphat, which for my money is the coolest name of any Israelite king, Jehoshaphat. Uh, the background here is that a coalition of Israel's enemies, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, have recently gathered together, and they're set to attack Judah. And Jehoshaphat was one of the few faithful kings of Judah, and he prayed to God for deliverance, uh, knowing that his armies were no match for this coalition. Enter Jehaziel, who the Spirit of the Lord comes upon. And his solution to the threat is a strategy. Uh, the language in this, the events of this passage are clearly meant once again to recall the book of Judges. So the book of Judges is basically a series of stories in which the Israelites faced a threat, uh, usually military, 
and the spirit came upon some individual who meets the challenge of the threat, usually by a violent and clever means. So, you know, you have the, the story about um, uh, who, who's the who's the left-handed guy who stabs King Eglon? What is his name? O, o, Obed? Ehud, Ehud, right? You have uh, the best, the wife of Jael, who who serves the uh, enemy king warm milk, and he takes a nap, and she drives a tent peg through his head and stuff like that. So that's that's the book of Judges. One day, one day I'll do a series on Judges. Not sure how I'll do it, but anyway, um, Jehaziel uh, presents a military strategy here, but his speech goes beyond just tactics. He encourages him not to fear. He promises victory. He reminds the kings and the people that the battle is in God's hands and not their own. Now, here's the thing. Jehaziel doesn't make up this speech out of thin air. Much of the words he uh, gives are taken straight from Deuteronomy 20, which is a description of what what the priests were to say before the Israelites go into battle. Uh, I'll quote the uh, verse for you so you can can hear um, the echoes. Today you draw near to battle. The priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies to give you the victory. So uh, you clearly hear the reference there. Uh, But it doesn't end there. Uh, Not only does Jehaziel uh, make reference to the priest's words in Deuteronomy, but uh, he uh, makes reference to David's uh, words when David faces Goliath. The battle is the Lord's. And he makes uh, reference to uh, Moses' words to the Hebrews as they're pursued by the Egyptian army and are trapped at the Sea of Reeds. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Now, interestingly, we also learned that Jehaziel comes from a family of priestly musicians uh, who were set aside by David uh, specifically to prophesy using music, using the lar, the lyre, the harp, and cymbals. So after making this speech to the people of Israel, uh, the, they all uh, get together and sing. And meanwhile, while they're doing this, this uh, coalition of Israel's enemies begins, begins fighting with each other. Uh, in fact, there's some cool echoes, you know, for your Bible nerds out there. If you remember the story of Gideon, there's some cool echoes there. But um, what's interesting is that Israel is encouraged and sings peacefully, but they don't have to resort to violence and bloodshed to win this victory. They win it without doing that. Uh, kind of a reversal of, the, uh, uh, of what happens in Judges. Now, That's the third story. The fourth and final story involves a priest named Zechariah. Now, this is a different Zechariah from the one the book's named after. But like Amasai, the spirit closed Zechariah. Zechariah delivers a very Old Testament prophetic fire and brimstone message in an attempt to persuade Judah to return to the, the Torah. But, you know, why does he do that? Because he wants, it says, in, I think it says in the first sentence, he wants Israel to prosper. Uh, the message uh, results in his death. Uh, and, and there's some irony here. His blood is shed uh, in the temple court. So the, the priest, uh, so Zechariah is a priest, and he actually becomes the sacrifice rather than administering the sacrifice. Now, let's uh, take, okay, so we've gone through all these stories. We kind of kind of get an idea about what they all mean. So let's start thinking about this. Let's put all this together. Um, if you remember, I said 
Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew ordering of the Bible. And that means that uh, Zechariah is actually the last person to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. We see he's rejected and killed for that. And uh, this is despite the, you know, his Levitical uh, pedigree. And, you know, partly that's because Chronicles wants us to understand this is why the destruction by Judah or of Judah by the Babylonians is necessary. Israel just wasn't going to listen. Um, now, all these stories are found nowhere else in the Bible. They've been purposely inserted into Chronicles. And uh, all of them have to do with the Holy Spirit. So that's the question. What is Chronicles trying to tell us? Okay, so, so, so I built this case that, that these stories are here, not just haphazardly, not just because, uh, like, oh, here's a neat story I want to tell. But these all involve the Spirit. They all involve uh, the message of Chronicles. Well... The way we find this answer is we see, okay, well, what are the similarities between these stories? Um, and so if we think about it, all four uh, involve uh, very learned responses, okay, by those faithful to God uh, dealing with a crisis. In all four stories, the, res- the response is a result of the rushing, the coming on, or the clothing of the Holy Spirit. And in some ways, uh, all these stories resemble the book of Judges. We've, we've kind of talked about that a little bit. Uh, and in Judges, uh, the Holy Spirit empowers a series of Israel's leaders uh, to lead them through a crisis. But the difference here is that in uh, these stories, the battles are fought uh, not with swords uh, and spears, but with words. Uh, there's not, you don't have this strength, the military power, the armies like we do in Judges. Uh, in other words, what Chronicles has done it, is it, that it has borrowed from the past, but it points a different way forward. Okay, so we're going to invoke these ideas in Judges, but we're, we're, that, that's not going to work. We've, we've tried that already. There's got to be a different way forward. Now, each of these individuals are all speaking in a public context. They're urging, they're persuading, they're using rhetoric. Yeah, and once again, if we only had knew a good rhetoric professor. Um, importantly, all call upon the language and the events of Israel's past. They build their cases on Israel's great traditions. Yet, and this is what's really interesting, all four reframe those stories. They recontextualize these traditions in a fresh way to apply to a new situation. So in each case, we have old stories and words, but they're spoken by new leaders to new communities with a new message. They are creative interpretations that preserve, sometimes add, sometimes subtract, and sometimes intensify their original meanings. They're politically savvy, they're probing, they're creative, and they're strategic. You know, uh, just to give you uh, one thought here, you know, in one instance, uh, we have this uh, militaristic reference uh, from judges that's turned into a message of peace. What they are not is simplistic proof texts. They're not flat readings of scripture. They are not unthinking legalism. So here's the thing, and this is what the point of the sermon is. This is kind of what each of us is doing with scripture like all the time, right? As we live our lives in our communities and in our public places, we meet the various challenges and crises, and we wonder, how do we respond? What's the way forward? 
And we, you know, we've been given this weird collection of ancient stories and commandments and, and, you know, genealogies and things and told that they were all given to us by the Spirit. And they're all profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in the righteousness. You know, I mean, we all know 2 Timothy 3.16, right? But working that out in our real life is a lot harder, right? Especially, you know, it's like all scripture. Okay, like even Chronicles. Yeah, even Chronicles. Okay, hopefully I'm making that point today. Um, but we see is that these stories in Chronicles is kind of working the same way. They're all working as doctrine for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And it is the spirit that is initiating and driving this work. So, you know, think about it. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go forward to the New Testament a bit. Uh, as Jesus says in John 14, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, notice that in each of these four passages from Chronicles, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to bring these stories, teaching all the wisdom of the past into bear in a contemporary new setting. This is not abstract theology. This is not people sitting in their armchair and formulating doctrine. Azariah and Amasai are not worried about a comprehensive systematic theology or worried about uh, the doctrine of superlapsarianism or something. This is real and living practical uh, doctrine here. Um, Far from a mystical experience uh, that we think of when we think of the Spirit, What we have in these four stories is interpretation, contemplation, reworking, you know, formulation, thinking, uh, all of them being applied to a concrete situation in the real world. And their aim, all of their aim is the same aim as the spirit has been given since uh, the beginning to bring life and flourishing to the world. Uh, The same thing that Jesus was always teaching about. Amasai brings a message of what? Shalom, of peace to David. Azariah brings a message of freedom from idols and a renewed relationship with God. Jehaziel brings life through salvation from Judah's enemies. Zechariah is trying to bring a message of life and flourishing, of prosperity. He wants Israel to prosper by reminding them of their obligations to each other. We know Jesus is all about this. He teaches life and flourishing, you know, uh, most brilliantly on the Sermon on the Mount. He heals, he brings service, and he promises that he is not destroying the law, but fulfilling the law as he reinterprets Israel's traditions. You know, I really like, I think... um, Thinking about all these issues, um, I really like the way N.T. Wright kind of puts this. So N.T. Wright describes what it is like to live out the the Christian faith. Like, how are we to take the scriptures and live this out? And, And this is what he says. It's like we have discovered the first four acts of an unfinished Shakespearean play, right? So if you remember back in English class, Shakespeare plays always have five acts, right? Well, let's say you discovered like this one and it had like four acts and you're like, this is brilliant. So the fifth act is not written, but let's say you're given the task of writing, directing, and acting out that last act. How would you do it? Of course, you would use the first four acts to help you to understand what had, become, what had become before. And you would use those to try to determine the trajectory of the message of the play. Where is this play going to? You would determine the different story arcs, where they were leading. And then you would try to use the language, the types, and the scenes from the first four acts to construct the final scene. 
You would also construct all of Shakespeare's other works uh, to help guide you. But at some point, you would also have to introduce some level of creativity in this project. You know, you still have to write it. Uh, The creativity would be on your own, but it would be based on your responsibility to remaining authentic to Shakespeare. In other words, it requires both innovation and consistency. And that's exactly what we find in these four stories. They're true to Israel's history. They're true to its traditions, but they're also reframing them. They're being creative. They're not just saying like, oh, that's what the verse says. Let's have this really simplistic reading of it. No, it's going beyond that. This is exactly what we need. It's exactly what we do as we navigate our lives with these words. All of us work for the salvation of this world. And we do this using the talents and the experience that God has given in our lives. You know, we've talked about that with Joseph and with uh, Bezalel and Aholiab and all these other characters. We also do this using scriptural traditions that we have inherited. Uh, We do this by also using our own creative and mental faculties. And we do this all as ambassadors of the new creation that God is bringing into this broken world. And we do this guided by the Spirit who is constantly leading us to bring life and flourishing to this world so that the glory of God that was revealed in Jesus Christ can be fully revealed. So it's up to us to do our part in our scene in this great drama that we have inherited.